Anibojo Kinoya, welcome to the Niganin podcast. Mishkiki Nibagokwe, da Nishnabe Nozuanawan, Kerry Dishnikanago, Gawi Mshi Nigiken Masin Dodem, Ganabajing Donjaba, Nishnabe and Dao, Niganin Services, Meanwhile Coke Nasuan Project, Donjanaki, Gichinendam Mampi Wiyayan. Welcome, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, it's Carrie here again, and I'm here with Dr. Tim. I'll let him introduce himself, and uh, it's just the two of us going to have a grand conversation today. So uh, welcome, Dr. Tim, and let us know who you are. Oh, okay. Hi. I'm, <laughs> I'm Dr. Tim. People usually just call me Tim. Uh, uh, and, and I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't do anything, uh, like that for you. Um, should you need medical doctor services? Uh, I am, uh, the uh, director of sustainability studies at Ontario Tech University and in, I'm in the political science department there. Um, and whew, I guess for about 15 years now, I have, um, been doing research all over the world with um, indigenous movements and indigenous communities. Um, and most of that research has had to do with one way or another, something that I'll just, I'll just get it off the table. I'll call it some sort of colonial power that comes and tries to do very bad things to local communities and local um, uh, people and cultures. Um, and then I have worked with communities to kind of develop, I mean, really document how they want to develop um, what I can just call decolonial um, ideas that their ideas about what is the good life, what is a better way to organize our society, how can we push back against, for example, this company that wants us to uh, poison our rivers so they can get our gold in in the case of in some cases uh and i document that and i try and help as much as i can and that's sort of been my role for f uh, about 15 years so so i started internationally mostly i'm interested in international development i started working with uh maya rights organizations in guatemala then garifuna organizations in honduras um quiche uh, or sorry, Quiche is Guatemala, Quechua um, organizations in Ecuador, which is an interesting um, case, and uh, Awahun in Peru more recently. And um, for the last five years or so, I've had a I, what I consider a, a close relationship working with um, Niganin. Uh, so we've... Uh, we, we've we've been working on a lot of different projects that follow that theme of more how to imagine a new world using local knowledge. I'll say a, a new world, a new way of living using local knowledge. Um, and we've been doing a bunch of projects together based on that. Oh, miigwech. I think uh, when you're talking about your experience internationally, that's really important uh, for to be part of the conversation uh, for our communities to, to recognize that this isn't just a problem that we're having here in Canada or Ontario, that, you know, there are Indigenous people all over the world that are facing similar issues, or maybe not even similar issues, but struggles and issues with colonization. Uh, we had a podcast a few a few weeks ago, I'm not actually sure of the exact date, but um, it feels like a recent conversation that Jessica and I had about uh, decolonizing and ideas around that. I think it was about like revitalization versus decolonization, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the other part too, I was thinking of when you were talking about your work with Niganin and new ways of doing things. But the first thing that popped in my head is new ways or different ways, maybe, right? Because some of these concepts aren't really new to us. We just haven't been able to do them for a while. Yeah, maybe alternative ways. 
but also you have to be always very careful when you talk about drawing on history and culture to create um, something, an alternative. You're also being creative and in the now, and, and it's also a mistake to say that, you know, a community, an, indige an indigenous community anywhere that's building an alternative way is just drawing on the past. They're building something new and appropriate with roots in the past and also an understanding what's happening, their future and the present. I guess it's a, it's a bit of a seven generations model. If you think of it, it's future focused, it's now focused, but it's also focused in in the lessons and then in the wisdom from the past as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting at. Was it's not it's a totally future looking. Uh, it is incorporating who we are, but the reality is this is how we're living right now and and what we're facing with, right? So. Yes, because um, 500 years ago, we'll say 600 years ago, there wasn't a colonial power like this. There, there also wasn't smartphones and the internet and podcasts. Um, all those things are different, but that does not mean that old ways and old, old wisdoms and knowledge are outmoded. There's a very good argument to be made that there are a lot of what not just indigenous communities need right now, but maybe the world needs a little bit of that right now. So there's a lot of stuff we could really talk on. You know what I was thinking is let's, what if we creatively made a connection between Niganin and uh, the, say the communities of the, the first nations of the uh, Robinson Huron treaty area more generally with um, those communities in Guatemala, Honduras, and Ecuador, for example, so we can understand those connections. Is that an interesting way to go? I, I am definitely interested in hearing how other people have uh, approached thing, approached similar struggles in our communities, for sure. I know um, things that came to mind were um, the Maori people in New Zealand and their language initiatives um, and some of their approaches to education. I don't want to say land-based education. I'm not as familiar with it, but I know there's, um, there's some really cool things going on down there I'd love to hear more about. I don't often hear about Guatemala, Honduras, or Ecuador, though. So... Well, everybody has a certain set of challenges. I think the best place to start, instead of talking about the, I guess, the decolonial projects, are the is the coloniality, the the colonialism, and how that's connected. So, so for example, I can take this is this has become very obvious in my work. I can think of the First Nations of the Robinson Huron Treaty area, generally. And you know, North Shore Tribal Council um, First Nations are, of course, included in that. And we can think of what happened in colonialism in Canada, and we know the stories, we know the reality quite well. Um, not well enough, most of us, but but we we can understand that it was a process in which a colonial power or two came and saw resources. And uh, you can paint it in any other way, and it was painted as some you know religious. <laughs> mission and whatever. But at the end of the day, it was about those resources. What were the resources? You know, trees and stuff you get from the ground and animal pelts, basically, right? So, so the one of the main things, of course, in your area is um, extractive industries. It's getting metals from the ground, gold, nickel, whatever, uh, whatever the biggest ones happen to be. Now, What's interesting there is that extraction of that land created the biggest gold and nickel mining companies in the world and created the, some of the wealthiest companies in the world on, and really created the Toronto Stock Exchange as well. It, that was powerful. The biggest companies listed on the TSX were those companies that made money by extracting now, if you look at it, and I'm gonna, uh, you know, I I'm paraphrasing a really uh, 
an indigenous perspective on that. But how was the land? Maybe you can a- answer this for me, Carrie. How was the land viewed by the indigenous peoples traditionally? That's a pretty heavy question. Yes. Yeah, so true. here I go on the spot. Um, I guess what I'm learning or, or how I feel personally or things I've been, I guess learning is the best phrase, um, is we, we don't own the land. We belong to the land, mm-hmm. right? So uh, the land provides everything that we need. Therefore, we have a responsibility um, to take care of it, coexist with it, because it we depend on it. And so if you, we don't have the, the, I don't want to get confused with other ideas. So let me finish that thought first, I guess. Um, but I think that's the main one, right? We, mm-hmm. we are here because we belong here. We were placed here. We were brought here. We came here, whatever, however you want to um, view history. But um, I think we were placed here and we belong here. Um, and so we know best how to live here based on like science and generations of existing with all the beings here and that we're all to look at it from a human standpoint, we're all people, right? So every, everything's equal. We're not above anything. In fact, humans might be be the least of everything. We were here last. And if we all, you know, left that the, land and everything else here would carry on just fine without us, maybe even better. I don't know, right? So those are some of the big thoughts I have around land, that it's precious mm-hmm. and deserves um, to be cared for and respected. Yeah. So I'm hearing that it's it's maybe above humans as far as, as, far as its value, and it cares for you and you care for it. Yeah. And all of the connected beings and biodiversity and all of that. But when you look at that from the perspective of colonizers, all it is is a bunch of stuff that needs to be taken. It doesn't matter what you do that, to that land to regenerate it or anything. No, you just take. There's no initiative other than that. So it becomes an object to be dominated. I will also argue that that's how the colonizers have looked at the First Nations people themselves right? They're connected to the land, they would say, isn't that wonderful? We'll dominate them just like we dominate the land, to be blunt about the way that they would would have thought. So when that land, which was in a reciprocal relationship with its people, (laughs) and the people were in a reciprocal relationship with that land, when that land was dominated and exploited, it was transformed into something. It was transformed into just money, right? The gold is sold and the money happens. Money doesn't stay put. I don't know if you noticed that before. (laughs) Money doesn't tend to stick around. Money actually becomes, when it was land, when that resource was land, it cared for the people. When it became money, it just left and it went out for a party on the globe. You know, it wanted, and you know what it wanted to do? It wanted to reproduce itself. It wanted to grow, create more money. And that's what happens as soon as you take that land and you convert it from something that is agricultural even, or or just subsistence. Um, you, uh, when you convert it from a, a relation of yours to money, it becomes almost psychotic. It just wants to reproduce and it will go anywhere that would allow it to reproduce more money. So this money went on an adventure, but that money is just um, it's just the land of your people in a different form. And it's gotten caught in this system that's sort of driven it crazy, if you can look at it in that way. So where did that money through, went, went through the stock exchange, created some of the largest gold mining companies, for example, in the world? What did those gold mining companies do? Well, that money was telling it to make more money. So they went to the countries with the weakest Uh, democratic systems, with the weakest protections of the environment, with the weakest labor laws, and and encouraged governments to have things like military coups, to overthrow democracies, to take over land, to to, um, assassinate indigenous leaders, for example. And again, to find that land and turn it into more money. So 
you can the most corrosive, destructive political and economic force in Central America right now, for example, are really Canadian mining companies. They were built on Anishinaabek gold, Anishinaabek land. It was built on the land. If I'm thinking of from an indigenous perspective, it almost makes me feel like the land is now sad and psychotic. It's like, what am I doing here? Can you imagine? You're dis... You're taking away from your humans, and you're in this place where you're just working t- to destabilize countries. In the case of Honduras, Canadian gold mining companies were complicit in overthrowing a democracy, which led to really a, a dictatorship under oligarchy, which the first thing that they did is they, they abandoned all needs to do environmental impact assessments on mining corporate on mining. Uh, and then Canadian companies came to own all of the gold in Honduras. People, especially indigenous communities rose up. The, um, Berta Caracas is one of, it was their, the leader of the indigenous and environmental movement in Honduras. Guess what? She gets assassinated because that's with the power that there is there. And and I can talk about the same in, happened in Guatemala and in other parts of Honduras. But that's the connection. That colonialism keeps colonizing. But then I'm going to I've got a neat idea I wanted to talk to you honestly Carrie for a while. So just 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 humor me here. What if that story was told from an Indigenous uh, perspective with Indigenous artists about the land, about sky, uh, when the land being created, Turtle Island, Sky Woman, all the stories that matter. And then the story was told about what that, mu- that land was converted into and how hurtful it was, not just for the people, but for the land and for other people. And then how do you, re- how do you repatriate that psychotic money that used to be your land. I think there is one way that might be happening, and it's weirdly through the colonial justice system, through the treaties. That's treaty rights. What happens when the Robinson-Huron Treaty is found by the in the colonizers' judicial system to actually be a relevant treaty? What happens when all of a sudden, those funds, those annuities that are supposed to be repayments for the destruction of this land, essentially, get paid back to the people. The money now comes home. And this is what I think is a fundamental decision. And I think that that I've noticed you guys are in the process of figuring this out right now. What do you do when this money in the form of those annuities comes home? How do you how do you heal the land and heal the people instead of having it still remain this sort of psychotic financial form that will just go away? Because it goes away as soon as you buy a bag of Doritos, right? And a little bit of it goes away. A little bit of it goes away as soon as you buy a can of beans or a vacation to Cuba or whatever it happens to be. So how do you get that money to stick and become part of the people and part of the land again. I think that's a big, to, it's, uh, to put it in that sort of a story, that's a big question that you're kind of working on. Um, and I think you have a lot of projects toward that. One that always sticks in my head, and, I, and it hasn't been actualized, but I know it's been really studied by you and, and, and Elizabeth and a lot of people at Niganin, is that's fairly obvious, but it's a brave step. Is this is the food cupboard, for example? Do you remember that that project? You know probably more. No, for sure more about it than I know. But it's it's from my outside perspective. It's it's making food. It, the the idea was buying land back, right? It started with buying your own land back, or or just going out and using the land that's there. Or just using the land that's there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So you can use this money all of a sudden and return it to the land, convert it back into land by farming, by creating food, creating work, 
by by nurturing the the local ecosystem and paying for that out of this money that was taken and and filtered around the world to do all these damaging things. So if I, if I'm going to tell it like a story, I think that would be a really neat story for indigenous storytellers and artists and especially knowledge keepers to put together um, as as a real root of what's happening here. It's taking the land, which is your relation back and changing it from this sort of lost <laughs> and very upset form <laughs> and putting it back and saying, come on home. We're all here. Yeah. So uh, that's a really exciting idea. I was imagining while you were talking, like, is this like artists doing art pieces and it's, it's a, or is it a collaboration that could be like a movie? And then is it like a documentary or is it a cartoon? Cause that might, uh, having visual artists with um, animation, you know, might. It could be every single one of those. Yeah. Things. Yeah. It could, it could be. I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm just a lot more boring than most people, but I keep thinking coffee table book. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, with you know, but why not? Uh, it can be a it can be a video game. <laughs> it could be a, a a YouTube video. It can be a book, it can be a story that's told in long form in the form of a novel. It can just be a story told by people. But yeah. it need it, it could be really creatively and wonderfully done as a vision toward the future while looking at the past by some of your incredible artists and, and knowledge keepers that, that, that you have. It's some, it's it's an idea. I shouldn't, this is an idea that I wanted to pitch to, to, to you guys for for a long time. So you do, I probably shouldn't have done it on a podcast, but you know, here we are talking. We haven't had a lot of chance to talk since the pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, there's just so many ideas around that too. Right. Um, cause I did consider like, Oh, that would be a good book. I, I'd like to read it. And since I don't think it's out there yet, then maybe I'm going to write that story. It's, it's, it's not story out there yet. And, yeah. And I know that a, a priority is also from speaking with Elizabeth Richards is, is, um, to have like a, a history library of stories. And I just, I feel like that is the and a kind of story that, I, I talked to Elizabeth not that long ago about the really nuts and bolts policy stuff that you've been doing. And she said, yeah, it's, it's really good, but that we're missing a piece. We're missing some sort of a story to bind it, to make it tangible and real to everybody. She said, that's the kind of thing that's missing. I think that listening to her got me thinking about that and thinking, I think you have a story that could be beautiful. So there's a lot of hope there. We can, yeah. we, can we can start it in podcast form. Maybe that's the series, right? Have a serial podcast story. This that's right. The history of us in our land. Mm -hmm. Um. So you that was quite a, a lot of info that uh, for context before you got to that idea, and I want to back up a little bit. Um. I think that is really important for people to understand the Canadian mining um, industry's role in the world and capitalism and how we live our lives today as we know it, right? Uh, because that's often the question I struggle with is how do you hold the powers that be accountable when you don't really have a mechanism to get to them because they influence government and that's the rules that you're trying to play by, right? Um and so those are important conversations that I wish more people had the chance to talk about, or maybe that I know where they're talking about them, because I definitely don't know the answers. Uh, and it's work I want to see happen. So let me go ahead for bringing that part up. Um, the other part too, uh, way back <laughs> near the beginning of your what you were sharing was a conversation what you brought up reminded me of a conversation that I had with a colleague who is um, non-indigenous and we were working together um, so we he, he was asking it was about economic development stuff right and mm -hmm. why don't people want jobs or or 
if the, if there's no work here, because there's not a lot of employment here, you know, why don't you just move to Calgary or move wherever the jobs are, right? And it's like, we don't have the luxury of that. We've been here for so long. Like, it was an eye-opening experience for me to realize that if how sad that must be to not be connected to a place to and if that's the mentality of people because i'm sure that's not a like it wasn't he's the one-off person but all the things you're talking about right where industry is like yeah we come in we take what we want we move on to the next place and bye good luck um and so what's left for the for the people that remain there because we don't get to move somewhere better this this was what we had and it was perfect yeah. um and so yeah that's the struggle too of how do you get it back to uh being being healthy or sustainable and so there's all kinds of projects going on like you mentioned um, like the food cupboard we have someone who is working on food security specifically like emergency management with a focus on food security talking about those kinds of things and I'm I'm excited to see what's what's going to come out of that because you know what sometimes some of those conversations or conversations in my head to myself that keep me up at night are oh, what does the future hold right my son is 17 and um yeah it's a big scary world out there it is and the, uh, there is a decision I, I want to I don't want to be out of place but I want to make it clear that there is a bit of a decision, not a bit, a massive decision that has important consequences that is coming in in the form of what do you do with annuities that are granted through the Robinson-Huron Treaty. There's a couple of choices and that story really makes, that we were talking about, really makes that choice um, fairly clear to me, though it's a community um it's a community issue that needs to be debated debated and the, but I'll premise this by saying the reason I'm fairly confident and in, in saying what I'm saying is because we measured it together Gary we asked the community how they feel about certain things and uh, we had a fairly clear response so the dilemma I'm talking about is do you take this it, it, say there's a billion dollars and it's going to be given as uh, annuity in total uh, to the people of the area. Do you take that money and just give it to each person? Or do you take that money and do you invest it in the land, in food security, and in cultural revitalization projects, for example, collectively? So it's a it's a decision whether you take it individually, that those funds, or collectively. Um, when we did the an experiment. I'll call it uh, a participatory budgeting experiment. We asked people in all the of the communities um, of the area what they what they would do if they were in charge, and it was pretty overwhelming. They didn't want to have the money go to individuals so that they could buy this and buy that. They wanted it invested in cultural rev revitalization projects, food security projects, things like that, and natural revitalization, I think, thing, all those sorts of things. So that's a conversation that's happening in, in your communities right now, I know, uh, and amongst leadership, for sure. Um, and it's important to think about that in the context of the story. Do you want that... If you take it as money to individuals, that tends to be mean that it's going to stay money. It's not going to become the land again. And that's a little scary when you think about the story we, we talked about. Um, and another thing that related to that that comes to mind is when I met first met uh, some of you, and I don't remember if you were there, Carrie, but it was when I met Elizabeth Richard, uh, uh, Richard and... Uh, and a, a bunch of others at the conference for the basic income in Hamilton, because you had done this basic income pilot project. And what you found through I had many, many uh, talking to people from many, many First Nations in Ontario was that people started to, uh, First Nations 
people in First Nations communities started to think of the idea of getting a basic income as kind of colonial because it's very individualistic, right? You're just getting money as individuals. It doesn't have that community connectedness, connectedness to nature, et cetera, et cetera. So these are, oh, yeah, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Riche. That's right. <laughs> I should say it like that. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll back off. <laughs> I'll back up uh, on that one then. Um, so the first time I I, I met uh, Elizabeth Riche and uh, and many uh, other people from Nigan and was at a basic income um, conference and where they were talking. Uh, you you all were talking about the study you did on basic income itself, and um, I was surprised at the time to hear that the conclusion that came out of the study from talking to first people on many first nations from many first nations community was the the idea that basic income was somehow colonial that's something big to say at a basic income conference where a lot of people are going there to to, to sort of pump the tires of basic income but the but the message was yeah it's good to have people to have their, their freedom as far as, uh, you know, spending what they want. And it's good to give people who are on social assistance more money because they're not given enough clearly now. But to do it by giving one lump sum to each person to do with what they will is very individualistic. And it and it makes it so that you can't, you don't have those funds to invest in something like a community level cultural revitalization program, mental health programs for the community food security programs for the community, building community spaces, connections between people, building the community, the economy of the community. It, it doesn't do that because it doesn't take that money. If we're following our original story that's gone psychotic, it doesn't take that and make it the land again. It takes that money and people have it in their hands. And you know what happens when people have the money in, it, in their hands in that form, the money goes. It goes back into the world, into the system, and stays in that kind of psychotic form of money. So that's a that's a big, important debate that's happening in your communities right now. Yeah, for sure it is. Um, that's one of the things that uh, I'm hoping that the communities are working on. I know they are. Uh, there's just so many issues that we're faced with and it's an uphill battle of the day-to-day runnings of your community and, and taking care of your people as well as it looking at the long-term growth and uh, nurturing of, of your community and, and what the future holds. Right. Um, one of the things that I, I really, really, really hope <laughs> that our communities are ready for the annuities case or, or those kinds of opportunities that could have or could see a lot of money coming into our, coming our way is what are we going to do with it? I know um, the Williams Treaty, I think they, they had individual payouts. And to me, that was heartbreaking. Not that I begrudge anybody for the, you know, what, what they feel is owed. I think, I think that was based on the voice of the people and that's you know, fair enough. I'm, I'm not one of those people. So I didn't have a say. <laughs> so that's, you know, but when I see it in our area with Robinson Huron treaty specifically, are we ready? And if we're, if are we getting ready, who's getting ready? Um, I, one of my other positions I have is I'm also on council and, my home community. And I really want to have those kinds of conversations, right? And it's, it's tricky, mm-hmm. or to fit it all in, because we're dealing with COVID and um, capital plans and space for all our staff and keeping people safe. And um, there's just so many things to that take the attention that yeah. who's who's in, who's got their eye on that and working towards the plan for when it happens because it's coming. I, I think it's fairly clear from my experience that 
Niganen really has been developing a plan, and I don't think you should sell yourself short um, with the work that that you've been doing with Niganen and the work that a lot of people have been doing at Niganen. From my outside perspective, there's something happening there, and there is a plan. Maybe uh, uh, Elizabeth suggested it's missing that story, and maybe this whole thing we've been talking about is something to do with that. That binds the plan to something tangible to to communicate it in a in a tangible way. But there's a lot of it, and and part of that uh, maybe bringing it together. It it's got to be brought together in some way. I remember part of it is you said you were talking to your your friend. Um, and uh, a colleague about well why don't people just move away and and uh, you know there's there's all often talk about well there's not an economy that's really able to sustain people here so why don't people just go and whatnot however we had a really constructive meeting in in one of the Niganen meetings about what is a job what is a job supposed to do there's no lack of care, of care work, whether for the environment or the community, that needs to be done in that area. If there's annuity money, you can create jobs with that annuity money, but it doesn't have to be jobs that are looking for new gold deposits so we can find what to exploit and to, uh, and to ship out. It can be jobs about who's caring for the elders. Uh, who's who's contributing to cultural revitalization projects? Pay people to do that. Who's uh, working to um, toward uh, food security projects? Pay people to do that. Use the money in that way, and the money becomes the land and the culture again. You know what I mean? So there was a big uh, for me listening to the talk that that you 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 guys from Niganen were having about what is a job from an indigenous perspective. That was that just blew the whole definition of a job right off the map, right? But that can be sustainable because if you have a sustainable culture and, and the food security is a great example, if you have people, sure, for the first while you're paying people that aren't going to be as efficiently productive as I don't know. Kellogg's company is going to be right to make food but eventually you have a tradition meaningful work which means meaningful lives and I don't have to tell you how important it is for someone to have meaning in their lives meaningful culture which gives people meaningful lives great for mental health and physical health as well as just the value of the culture itself and all of a sudden you have a new project, a dream, an idea, an identity, and an economy. It's not an economy necessarily of uh, a growth-based economy that's based on efficiency and how much more money can we make next year and next year and next year. But remember, that's the ideology of that psychotic money that, <laughs> that was flowing through the system anyway. It's an, uh, it's an economy based on sufficiency. And that's something that was really lost. It Western Europeans had idea had had cultures that based their economies on sufficiency before the year 1500, 1492 ish. They had those. Those were erased at really the same time that indigenous cultures were so marginalized as well in the colonized territories. So the there's that's not even only an indigenous position that a job is caring for your environment and your community and your elders who are sick. You know, we really know we need healthcare people, <laughs> especially now. We know we need people to care for the environment, especially now as well. And we know we need food security, especially now, because our supply chains are pretty terrible. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of a, a vision that that shouldn't be looked at and, and thought about, well, that doesn't look like, you know, the economy of New York City currently. But New York City needs that too, or it will die. Because we have an environmental crisis coming. That's way bigger than this COVID crisis. And if we couldn't cooperate and find new ways of, of, of creating economies and societies to deal with COVID, how are we going to do it with the bigger problem? that requires a lot of cooperation and a lot of sacrifice, the climate and biodiversity uh, catastrophe that's, that's on our doorstep. Yeah. So there's a, 
I really love having conversations with you. I feel like I get smarter just by listening to you. Um, but it gets all the wheels rolling, right? So yeah. I got about 18 things I wanted to come back to and chat about. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is um, I struggle with I know I can sort of see what would be better and, and I know people are working on it, like you said, and thanks for, for reminding me, uh, Niganin is working on this. That's why we're, we're doing this podcast and I mm-hmm. get to, you know, have this really fun job that I love a lot. Um, because yeah, that's important. I think mostly it was more like, is everybody aware of what's going on and how many people need to be aware? You know, maybe I, it's overambitious of me to want everybody to be aware, but I think it's important. Um, and then what are bite-sized things that can actually, like what can, what are attainable things, right? Because mm-hmm. I do see the, the long-term, absolutely. I would totally love to have an, in our own enclosed sustainability, food sustainability piece where like maybe we're actually supplying other people or neighbors with food and stuff. Um, I mean, like within within like our watersheds and stuff. I don't mean like across the ocean or anything, because um, I don't think that's sustainable. <laughs> yeah, um, good point. And then the other part too was like, oh well, what some of the things you're talking about, and my other project. Uh, well, we did it in, in the labor market survey too a little bit, and I know my own community struggles with this. So, uh, with my new project, I'm involved with the Cognoswin project, um, which is supporting communities to help them no supporting communities for them to develop their own child well-being law this is uh, bill c92 mm-hmm. um and we're doing we're offering um a salary survey for um child well-being specific uh staff positions and a co- having a costing um piece available or 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 coinciding with the costing piece of if you're taking over your your own jurisdiction regarding child well-being what is what's the cost of that right because right now we're relying on the province um and it's much more than oh we need a couple of more workers and maybe a new office no actually it's it's so all-encompassing um and just thinking about that thinking as a community thinking long term um kind of regardless of what the project is, is I think the way we have to do it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it is the way we are doing it, but I want us to, <laughs> I want us to get better faster at doing it. Maybe. Um, anyway, there's a lot back- that needs to be done. Yeah. And it's gotta yeah. be, I mean, you can, and it's daunting to think about doing it all at one time, even if you have the means, uh, the, you know, okay, we're going to use, stop, paying people uh, giving uh, vouchers for food at the grocery store and we're going to grow our own food. Well, a lot of things could go wrong. And even if they don't go wrong, it's a transition that people won't be comfortable with at first. It's a tough thing to do. So it, it, it's it's hard not to be daunted by that sort of thing. And I think I see in your what, what you're saying is there's a question there about, well, Geez, how full on do you go here? Even if you can, is you know, is it is it too much to try and do everything all at once, um, or or how do we work slowly toward that? And I, you know, of course, there's no answer. Unfortunately, <laughs> there's no answer. It, it would be nice. I mean, we can't somebody, solve it in this podcast. Come on. No, it's too bad. <laughs> it's too bad. But you know, um, we were taught. I. Little by little, you know, I I just applied for some new funding. Who knows if it's going to happen? And it was uh, to do work with with Niganin, and and in in that funding, I put hiring somebody for five years to be a community um a a, a language and cultural revitalization role and and a connector between community members. Just pay somebody for that period of time and they and that's their job and they have to connect with people and 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 create space and and see what happens and there's all sorts of that's example uh, an example of one job right that somebody could do you actually have already hired uh, in your emergency um what was the position for emergency planning right 
somebody who's doing some really important thought and work. Um, and I'd love to get a, an update on that <laughs> sometime. I know it's harder because COVID kind of hit us immediately afterward. But somebody who's doing work in that sphere is food security. There's all sorts of education, land-based education and things like that, that all, that all builds toward it. It's however, one to me, and, and it's, this is part of it. It's that maybe it's a, it's, this is a problem with all of humanity right now, thinking as individuals, instead of thinking about community and ecosystem members is a problem. The problems of, of of building successful societies, societies that care for their people and for their environment, that takes a lot of cooperation. You can't do it as 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 um, individuals who are fighting for their freedom. <laughs> you have to do it as individuals who are parts of communities and care about that community and care about their nature, uh, and natural world and. But the wonderful thing is, is that stuff is in Anishinaabe culture. It's right there. So those lessons are really important. And I will say one thing we did, I, I don't even know if I discussed with you when we did a labor market study, we put in questions about that, uh, a few questions that 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 asked, okay, how do you relate to nature? Do you have empathy for nature? Do you have a feeling of oneness with nature? And that's uh, kind of important because those questions, how we frame them, were out of studies uh, on this psychological discipline discipline related to nature-relatedness. Turns out people who score higher on those sorts of questions that we asked tend to do more what are called pro-environmental behaviors. They help the environment, they help others, they care. So it's you know, how do you care? Do you have an emotional attachment to nature kind of questions? We had those as part of our labor market study we did uh, in with Nigandin. And we also, of course, you know, well, measured how much indigenous knowledge each of the people who participated ha- had. And I did some fancy math on this, and it's under review in a, in a, in a, in a, in, a, in an academic journal currently. And we found a very strong statistical relationship between how much you know the stories, songs, and culture of of your people and how nature-related you were. It wasn't – there's a lot of theories. I heard somebody on, on CBC News, uh, an academic from – from uh, out west, from Vancouver, talking about this, saying, you know, indigenous peoples have a closer relationship to nature. But he says, I don't want to, the term we use is essentialize. I don't want to essentialize in saying that that's some sort of natural thing. The reason that indigenous people have a closer relationship with nature and want to care for nature more is just because they spend more time in nature. That's actually not true. A lot of the people from the urban areas, you know, in, in Sault Ste. Marie or whatever or, or, that we that we um, that we interviewed, if they knew songs and stories and ceremonies, they had a, a higher relationship with nature. They were more uh, had a more of a felt relationship with nature. It was the songs and the stories. People who went hunting, don't tell Tasha this. Because I know she, people who went hunting actually didn't have a higher nature relatedness, but that's an activity that you have to take a lot, long, lot of time in the woods. I, I don't know why they didn't. My pet theory is that the hunting isn't like hunting used to be. So it's more of a dominate nature kind of hunting that's based on Western traditions of hunting, probably, or something like that. I don't know. We can't, I don't know how, I can't pick that apart in the data. But the strongest things were if you knew plants and medicines and if you knew ceremonies. That, that's a really interesting thing because that says if you learn more indigenous culture, you will care for your environment more. It's not about being even being in the woods is good and land-based learning is wood. I would suggest mixed with indigenous culture learning is is optimal. 
then all of a sudden you're building a relationship with nature through your own culture. And that will make you better what people call environmental citizens or, 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 or whatnot. And the wonderful thing about that is it works for everyone. I mean, there's, like I, I mentioned earlier, Western societies lost this at almost the same time through the same, this colonial process was something that happened while lands were being taken from indigenous peoples in the Americas, land was being taken from poor people in England. They were kicked off in the enclosure movement and, and fenced off and made into individual landless laborers. Whereas before they lived in the land and they had this similar relation ideas of relationship for land in their culture. So there's something colonial that happened on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean that colonized both people and both both peoples in, in attempts to change those, to sever the relationship with nature as an example, and to sever the relationship with communities. So it's, it is an, clearly a, a, an indigenous issue, but it's not only one. Modernity did something nasty in that sort of form to even people in, in Europe itself. Oh, I'm going to go even further. Okay. Okay. I know you have, I'm going to go even further. And this is my last like, boom idea. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is it. I have been thinking a lot about this recently too. Science and democracy are not modern, are not the, the inventions of the colonizer. Democracy was alive and well. Uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, for example, was used as a model for the American Constitution. Science was alive and well as also in the Americas, what, we, what came to be called Americas, well before colonization, well before 1492. Before 1492 in Europe, they did not have science or democracy. We have this idea that these things called science, the whatever this thing is called science, and these democratic practices were developed in Europe and kind of came over with colonization in this weird way. But probably what happened, and it's hard to, to show this, show the little strands here, probably what happened is democracy was stolen. It was an indigenous idea that was stolen just like the gold was. <laughs> and, and democracy, and so was science. But when science and democracy hit Europe, it became interpreted in a particular way. Science was was started to be done in a way that scientists call dualistic. We split nature from humans and we thought we were above nature. That's how, I, I think that's how Western Europeans interpreted the indigenous science that they, they brought over. You know, those conquistadors down in South America, when they first saw the wonders of, you know, of uh, the indigenous uh, civilizations down there and the same in North America, we're kind of, we, we've got some writing that they're like, wow, these people are way more advanced than we are in Europe. We've got them saying that, right? So, you know, they took some of these advances home. But what they did is this dualistic thing. They said, okay, humans are, are like gods. They're smarter than nature. Whereas the indigenous science was holistic. Humans are nature. That was a big mistake. I mean, it was a it was a miraculous invention for Western Europe if you want money and power and global domination. It was a horrible mistake if you want a civilization that continues and doesn't die in the face of environmental catastrophe. That was a bad decision. Same with democracy. It became very individual individualized once it was imported to Europe. Maybe it had to do with the Christianity or something, something I'm not sure, but it was imported to Europe and then changed slightly to be more individualistic and less community centered. 
right? So, so this is sort of the idea that I wanted to float out there and then hear all your thoughts about all these ideas <laughs> that, that I have about this. It seems that um, indigenous people invented modernity and it was just badly interpreted in Europe and then sent back to the indigenous peoples in, in a horrific and damaging form. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about adding very much. Um, so we do the speaker series once a month uh, with our team, and um, it goes beyond our team too. But anyway, there's quite a few people that get to come. It's once a month, second Friday of every month, all day long, nine till two. And what you're talking about is the kind of stuff that I'm trying to like, okay, you know, trying to get people – um, either to understand if they've never heard that before, or considered it that way, or to get excited about about okay, so now that we know this, what what can we do? What are we going to do? How are we going to help our people? Because that's what we that's what they do. They're frontline workers, right? Um, oh, sorry, that was my bing. I think they're separate, so that's that's okay. okay. Um, lots of things to to comment on so the the going back to the labor market survey and the questions that we asked and responses we got um i even before we did that work i knew that we undervalued our knowledge keepers um and i liked that knowledge keepers is more than who can pick the medicines it's who can who can uh, spread the word who who can get the who can be inviting people to the events or making sure all the elders know um, that you know this is there's something happening that they they should come and enjoy or those kinds of things right it's more than than just uh, things we think of as you know cultural or traditional traditional work but I I wish we would invest in our knowledge keepers. Um, at least equally to how we how we look at people that have a Western education. Um, if I'm considering some of uh, the people in my home community who know so much and are out on the land, like who who know how to say make black ash baskets still because that's what their family did, um, or or know other things um, that they should be involved in a key part of of helping us remember who we are and and working towards that food sustainability piece and the governance stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thanks for bringing that piece up. Cause I, I really like that kind of work. Um, and then when you're talking about the modernity thing and like taking it and then, you know, messing it all up and then sending it back to us. I was thinking of Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. I don't know if you've ever read that. Yeah, it's on my nightside table right now. Yeah, I love that yeah. book so much. And we got to see her speak um, in person, which was, which was really great. Wow. Um, uh, me and my my sister, not, not um, Elizabeth, but one of my other sisters. And... So that's what I was thinking of, too, when you're saying that, is sometimes even we forget that we know, or, or there colonialism does such a good job at telling us maybe we know better than you that even when no you don't that it's kind of uphill battle to like be recognized for how you how your perspective on the world right and your the knowledge that you you have or have learned by being who you are or, or um, learning from your your home and your family um Yeah, I think I think so, and I think that another important thing about what's happening with Niganen is that there are these initiatives there, and I know you all think about it a lot, um, and you are slowly creating a model, and that's a special thing because there's not a lot of places in the world where they're they're able to. So I know a lot of times you, you feel it's frustrating and. And you feel you don't have resources and and people are so traumatized from history that it becomes very difficult. But it's starting to flush out that Niganen is creating a model for other places to follow 
not follow, but create their own model, you know, to show what's possible. And I really see that kind of burgeoning in in like in you and Elizabeth and everybody there that you you, you talk. It's a, it's about people who are passionate about creating that model too, right? Um, and I do see that really emerging. I know it's a lot of work to put on your shoulders. It's got to be it's got to be exhausting beyond all the other exhausting things we've had to deal with in the last couple of years, you've been dealing with this one exhausting thing too, which is trying to struggle to do that. However, it's got to be inspiring at the same time. I think that's the important thing too, because it doesn't feel exhausting working with these projects on Niganin. Like, I, I love my job. I wake up, I'm like, woohoo, can't wait to get <laughs> cracking. Um which I think is helpful uh, for me, at least, you know, to to feel like we're, it's worthwhile. That's the key piece is mm. I feel like where I'm investing my time has meaning and I'm doing my best to work towards a better future. So I'm all in, right? Um, I'm just looking for more people. Uh, and like you said, I'm glad you're reminding me that you you guys are all, we're all here, right? We're like a team of about 50 now of um, who are the like-minded people that we can work together with. Um, so if you're listening to this podcast and you're in on, on it with us, let me know. Um, could let us know on the website, shoot us a message, um, come and have a chat with me sometime, or maybe you can have a cup of tea sometime and talk about all these things we want to do to change the world, <laughs> make it better. Well, you know, it's also take, takes a bit of the wind out of the sails when COVID has, right? It's, it's separated us to, to be in the, in rooms, having meetings and, and uh, with actual people and brainstorming these ideas like we have, that's where you get a lot of forward momentum, I guess you could say. And it's been tough. I mean, it, you know, it is what it is. COVID knocked us knocked everybody around a bit this whole this whole thing has done that so so i mean it's a, been a little bit harder to follow through on these great ideas than it would have otherwise clearly um i, I wonder uh, imagine how amazing it would to meet with those 50 people for a couple of days workshop coming back to what's the vision what's the project what's the direction right now that would be I know very productive with the, because I I'm familiar with a lot of the people that would be involved. It would be something special. And maybe that's something that's, that's, that should be on the cards. If it's, if it's possible to, I mean, you can do that in zoom too, I suppose I, it, and it can work. I don't actually, it can work in that format. So maybe that's something to think about. Um, I'm well, maybe old fashioned thinking and maybe it doesn't work quite as well, but when what you were just talking about, though, um, I was thinking like, oh, maybe I want to do that with each community come in and mm -hmm. with the Niganing team and say, what do you want for your community? And do some of that dreaming and have the right people in that room. Because I, it's one thing when we talk mm -hmm. with each other about these things and 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 do do our work. But uh, yeah. so I don't know if that's the next project after the story. Well, there, you. Right? It's that's kind of a follow up on the income assistance project that you did, right? You went to those communities and had focus groups and did talk about forward what how do you envision your community? That and that is there. I mean, although it's good it, you want to keep doing that. I and I because that's where you get sort of for that forward momentum and and new ideas this pandemic has changed a lot of people's impressions of how the world works and what's possible and not possible and things like that as well. And really brought some, I think weaknesses and strengths um, to the forefront that we maybe didn't notice before. So going to the, you know, if I were designing it as a research project or if we were together, it would be like, go to those communities and once again, listen to what their visions are. But maybe this time it's a little bit more tangible. Maybe this time it's like, we're building something. What kind of things do you want to, what's your input on that? You know what I mean? Instead of before just thinking, what's your, it was more questions about what are your visions of the future? Measuring very carefully and responsibly what people think about the future. 
now we've kind of got that. You collected a lot of that. We've got reports on <laughs> everything. And uh, now it can be something more like very similar. But, okay, we're going ahead with this. What do you want? Let's make a model. Let's make our vision. That would be really interesting. And then taking that to, to Nigan and uh, to discuss with the input of the, the communities, what a wonderful way to go about things. And eventually, though, I mean, little by little, you, you hire this person there to have this job and that job is good. I, I do feel like eventually there's a time you're like, okay, we're going to start this farm. <laughs> Put on your rubber boots. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's coming sooner than later, for sure. There's so many uses you could do there, right? Some of our other programming could happen there. and mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Nicotine Farm, keep your eyes open or let us know if you <laughs> can spot for it. Uh, so thanks so much for spending the afternoon here with us at the Nicotine Podcast, Dr. Tim. It's always inspiring to hear about your work. And I look forward to having another conversation about maybe banding together internationally with other Indigenous people and um, how they're approaching things or sharing, you know, how, how we're doing things up here on the North Shore. So, yeah, miigwech for, for joining well, us. Well, miigwech to you. So good to see you again and to chat. <laughs> it's been far too long. Yeah, I can't wait to see see you again in person. Like you said, that it's always better energy when you can mm. be in the same room. Exactly. Okay, then Carrie, uh, miigwech. All right, miigwech. Bamapi.